Would you please turn with me to your study outline that's there in your program? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word, as well as our friends at the Baptist Community Church in Arco, Idaho, and also our friends at Purpose Church, Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us today uh, for our study from the Bible. We're continuing our series that we started last Sunday. We're going to be doing it during the month of March from the book of Colossians. And this title of this series is simply called First, uh, Putting Christ First in Our Lives. That's what we're going to talk about. It's going to be all about Jesus and putting him first in our lives between now and when we get uh, to Easter Sunday. And last Sunday, the message was about how to live an epic life. And I talked about the fact that everybody tends to think they live ordinary lives. When you get to heaven, you're going to wish you took yourself more seriously. And you say, well, Glenn, that kind of sounds arrogant. That sound, sounds presumptuous. That doesn't sound very Christian to me. No, no, no. you got to understand. What it is is that when you get to heaven, you're going to realize, my goodness, what I did in this life counted. Uh, like in Gladiator, what you do in this life echoes into eternity. And so we're going to get to heaven, we're going to be like, oh my goodness, that assignment God gave me, I thought it was just kind of a dumpy assignment. I thought it was just kind of an ordinary one. Uh, you're a nurse at a hospital, and you, you've got those patients uh, to take care of. Or you're a teacher, and you've got those students. Or whether it's a ministry here at the church, and you got a, a small group of high schoolers or junior hires, and you say, okay, uh, this is not some preaching to some big stadium full of people. This is just a small group. This is just a life group. Uh, this is just a classroom of second graders that, that I'm teaching. And we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to go, oh, my goodness. My life was epic. Those things that God gave me weren't ordinary. They were extraordinary. They had huge impact. And so we need to take the things that God has given us. Every day that you get up, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Every morning you wake up, it's Game 7 of the World Series. It is epic what God has called you uh, to do. Your life is epic, but you don't fully realize it until the end of the journey uh, when you get to heaven. Uh, I, uh, I don't know if I've told you guys this story uh, before. I don't know if I ever have, but here's a picture of my dad uh, from 1937, Glenn Kermit Gunderson Sr. He saw fit to bequeath upon me his middle name. What a wonderful thing. Uh, he knew it would make me get tough or die, and so I am Glenn Kermit Gunderson Jr., and in 1937, my dad and his uh, best friend, Emerson Gonson, uh, they were both sophomores at Wheaton College, uh, my alma mater, there outside of Chicago in Illinois. And they were sophomores at Wheaton in 1937. Well, they decided to canoe the length of the Mississippi River the summer between their sophomore and junior years. So they were going to start up here in Minnesota in Lake Itasca and, and canoe all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. That's how they were going to spend their summer. Now, the Mississippi River is 2,348 miles long. They got 1,900 miles into the trip, almost to the end, uh, toward their goal, 1,900 miles, and then tragedy struck in Greenville, Mississippi. They hit a giant whirlpool on the Mississippi River, and my dad's friend Emerson drowned in that whirlpool. Uh, my dad survived after 45 minutes of fighting his way out of the whirlpool. Uh, he eventually won second in a closest-to-death contest for Field and Stream magazine, and uh, he, he fought his way out of that whirlpool. The news reports that came out of that were that it was my dad that died, not his friend. 
And so he goes back to Wheaton College that fall. My mother and he had been uh, casual acquaintances at that point. And she turns around, and there he stands. She almost passed out and fainted because she thought she was seeing a ghost. And uh, then she realized the mistake in the newspaper. They started dating, and then they got married, and that's how I uh, came about. That's how that whole thing happened. Um, And so we've heard this story in our family for years, my sisters and I. And we just thought it was just like a tragic family story. We thought it was, but it was tragic, but it was ordinary. I thought maybe dozens of people may have tried to canoe the Mississippi uh, every summer. I mean, after all, what else is there to do in 1937, you know? And so I thought maybe it was typical. Maybe a bunch of people uh, did it. Then two weeks ago, out of the blue, I get contacted here at the church by a Mississippi River historian. I didn't even know there was such a thing. An historian for the Mississippi River. He contacts me and he says, are you the emails that says, are you the Glenn Gunderson that is your father was also named Glenn Gunderson? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, could you send me all the information you have on this tragic incident? And then he sent me all these newspaper articles that my family, we, we had never seen. And uh, we found out by reading these articles that if my dad and Emerson had completed the trip, they would have been the first human beings in history to do so. If they had finished that up, they would have been the first people of, of any you know, Native American or uh, Caucasian or European background. They would have been the first humans in history to do it. And so this thing that we thought was kind of typical uh, turned out to be atypical or extraordinary. As a matter of fact, another team of canoeists later that summer, they finished and got all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, and they're the ones that are in the Guinness uh, Book of Records today. So what I thought and what my dad thought and what our family thought was ordinary turned out to be epic. And I believe that's exactly what's going to happen at the end of your life. You're going to get to the end of your life, and you're going to say, okay, it was just kind of an ordinary life, and God gave me an ordinary assignment, not all that big of a deal. And we're going we're to get to heaven and realize every little thing we did in this life echoed into eternity. Everything we did was epic, and, and I think we're going to have a moment of regret. I mean, it's not going to dampen our happiness in heaven in any way, but a moment of regret in which we say, man, I wish I had taken my assignment from God more seriously. I wish I'd taken myself more seriously. I I wish I'd taken what God assigned me to do uh, more seriously. You don't work where you work by accident. You don't where you live and your zip code is not by accident. You don't you don't uh, have the kids in your family by accident. You don't you're not in your neighborhood uh, by accident. Now, last week we talked about five ways to live an epic life, and I want to add a sixth one today. It's have a first generation faith. And so let me start uh, this week the way with, with a chart that we ended last week. What happens whenever you start something is we called it last week, we called it first generation faith and this second generation faith. And this is true in business. If you start a business, you start with a mission for that business, but then it's easy to slide into maintenance. Uh, you can start a church and it's on fire and it's on mission, but then you slide into maintenance. Uh, this happens to Christian organizations. This happens... Uh, Jason Anderson, who's the district attorney uh, for all of San Bernardino County, the fifth biggest law firm. He's the head of the fifth biggest law firm in the world today, United States, maybe even in the world today. And he said, Glenn, could I take this chart and change a few things about it, like the God part and all that kind of thing. But he said, could I change a few parts of this and use it at the district attorney's office for San Bernardino County? Because he said government 
agencies, government institutions have exactly the same thing happen to them as well. Uh, wherever you work, whatever you're at, this, you, we start with mission and we slide into maintenance. And so I talked last Sunday how this is the 150th anniversary of our church. We started in 1870, five years after the end of the Civil War. Is that crazy or what? Uh, and we were primarily made up of, of people that were fleeing. Uh, this area was made up of people that were fleeing from uh, the South after the loss in the, in the Civil War and came to this area. And they organized some of them into a Baptist church 150 years ago. And I talked about how we've done research on this. And it is utterly unique. We're, it's one of us and about 10 other churches in American history. And maybe when you add a couple of other factors, we might be the only church in American history that's still going this strong after 150 years. We, our journey may indeed be epic, maybe even one of a kind in the history of the church, not only nationwide, but worldwide. And the whole key has been is that it's, it's, it's natural to slide from mission into maintenance. You'll do that every once in a while in your business or in your personal walk with Jesus or as a church. But you can't stay there too long. Because if you stay there too long, your church will die or your faith will die. And so we constantly have to rekindle and get back to maintenance. Your business will die if you can't constantly get back to the original mission of that, of that business or of that church or in your walk with Christ. So when you're on mission, you do whatever it takes. When you slide into maintenance, you do only what I'm asked to do. Mission assumes personal responsibility. Maintenance assumes someone else will do it. Mission expects personal sacrifice. That's what we're talking about here today. Maintenance expects personal comfort. A mission sees problems and seeks solutions. Maintenance sees problems and complains about them. Mission sees possibilities and dreams about what could be. Maintenance sees barriers and reasons to quit. Mission hears the voice of God firsthand and owns the vision. Uh, maintenance inherits the vision secondhand and questions every decision. Mission steps out with bold, reckless trust in God. Uh, maintenance sits satisfied in the stability of the institution. Mission fears holding anything back from God. Maintenance fears commitment. Mission feels privileged to be a part of the movement. Maintenance feels entitled to the benefits of the institution. Now, this, we shouldn't feel bad about this. This happened right off the bat with the early church. We always think, oh, those first Christians, they were on fire all the time. They woke up in the morning saying, I hope I get killed by the Roman Empire today. Wouldn't that be a great way to finish my day? No, they had the same struggles that we had. As a matter of fact, Jesus, in Revelation 2, verse 1, he talks to the church at Ephesus, which was a church, a group of Christians following Jesus in the city of Ephesus, which was not too far from Colossae that the Colossians was written to, uh, there in modern-day Turkey. And so he writes to him, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, look what good people these were. I mean, these were, these were awesome people. They, they were into maintenance mode, but they were, they were hardworking. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. They were like, you know, they weren't sliding in their morals. They were kind of like vigilant about stuff. Uh, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles. They, they would test people to see if they were teaching the truth or not, but are not, and have found them false. Uh, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. These are great people, but here's the problem. But, he says in verse, in verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Boy, that happens to us, doesn't it? 
How many of you uh, in your marriage sometimes slip out of that first love that you, that you had? Don't raise hands on that one, okay? Um, it can happen in your marriage. It can, it can happen with parenting. How many of you kind of fall out of love with parenting after a while? It's hard. It's hard to be a parent. It's hard to be married. It's hard to follow Christ. It, it's, it's hard to keep a church alive and vital after 150 years. You've forsaken the love you had at first. So here's what our 150th anniversary is going to be all about. Just making sure we're back on mission once again. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Something like 100,000 churches in America close their doors every year. And so if you stay in maintenance too long, you, you'll, you'll eventually, uh, the thing will close down. Your business will close down. Your marriage will close down. Um, your, your family life will close down. Your church will close down. You'll lose your faith in following Christ. Okay, now we come to Colossians. Uh, as we said last Sunday, it was written to followers of Christ in the city of Colossae, what is today the nation of Turkey, and Paul uh, wrote it from, from prison is where he wrote it from. And so one of the reasons he wrote it was because the Colossians had this question. Why, Paul, if you really are God's messenger, why are you in prison? And doesn't that discourage you? And Paul proceeds to give them three characteristics of first-generation faith or faith that is staying on mission. And the first one is a faith that sacrifices. We're going to spend most of the time in this point, and we're going to spend most of the time just in the first verse under this point. Now, can I just pause for just a moment and, and say, man, this is going to be some tough material today. This is going to be some rough sledding. I just want to give you a heads up. I was literally preparing this and thinking, man, this sermon is going to be a downer. The, th this thing is hard stuff. Man, th this is rough. And literally, literally, I'm halfway through my preparations, and I'm thinking about, man, this stuff, this is hard stuff. This is going to be difficult for people to hear. This is going to be hard. And then all of a sudden, I remembered, wait a minute. This is clock change Sunday. I got the clock change Christians here today. I got the hardcore spiritual Marines here today. Okay, this is like the worst attended Sunday in the whole year of the church is clock change in the spring. I said, I got myself, myself some hardcore people here today. They're going to eat this stuff up. They're, they're going to love this. So I literally thought, to, I was really encouraged. I'm like, okay, this is, God, this is why you lined up all this kind of hard stuff on this day. Because, I mean, anybody who can get themselves here on clock change day, better yet, if you're parents and you got your kids dressed, I mean, they showed up here and they're not naked or something like that, man, you, you, are, you are like heroic. And um, a couple of weeks ago, Joe Lawson, who goes to the 830 service, he's a retired naval commander, okay? He's a retired commander in the Navy. This guy's awesome. And he hands me a piece of paper after I preached a sermon uh, similar to this a few weeks ago. And, uh, and, he, and he wrote on it, does Purpose Church want to be a cruise ship or a battleship? Now, I thought to myself, the timing on that is not exactly re really good. <laughs> Because right now, how many of you would rather be on a battleship than a cruise ship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah now is not the time, if you've been reading stuff in the newspaper, to be on a cruise ship. All right. Don't want to breathe that air anywhere time, time soon. 
But in general, think about yourself. Okay, a cruise ship in normal times, okay, uh, two summers from now in the Caribbean or a battleship. Is Purpose Church want to be a cruise ship or a battleship? And I thought to myself, today is definitely a message for those who want to be on a battleship. Colossians 1, verse 24. We're going to spend most of our time just in this one verse. Now, I rejoice in what I'm suffering from you. You're like, what? How many times do you use this, the word rejoice and suffering in the same sentence? And Paul says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering from you. So, okay, Paul, are you a sadist? Do you, like, love pain? Uh, are you super spiritual? I mean, so consumed by Scripture, uh, you know, just so super spiritual that you don't even notice if you're in prison or at home. You don't notice if you have a warm meal or if it's all moldy bread that you're getting there in the prison. No, that's not what's going on here. Uh, here's what J.D. Greer says is going on here. Joyful sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love even more. You rejoice in suffering when you love what you gain through suffering. Suffering is the means by which God has ordained bringing salvation to the world. Life in the world comes only through death or through suffering in the church. Here's, here's basically what Paul is saying. There is sacrifice and suffering in bringing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the world. Um, whether it's sacrificing time and energy to get someone from your oikos, uh, your family and friends. Oikos is the Greek word for household. It's the 8 to 15 in your sphere of influence, people you go to work with, people you go to school with, people in your neighborhood, people, people in your friendship circle. Um, whether it's sacrificing time and energy to get your oikos to go with you to the fairplex this Easter, or it's sacrificing financially to see that the gospel gets to people in India that we talked about a couple of weeks ago and all the extensive work our church has in India and Thailand and other places like that. There is sacrifice and suffering in that, but there is also unspeakable joy when you see that person in heaven. I mean, you, you can't even imagine the dinky suffering this side of heaven. When you get to heaven and some kid from India tugs on your sleeve and says, hey, uh, you know what? Uh, I'm here because of you. You're like, what? You know, I just kind of sat in the comfort of this church and put some money and gave it to what we're doing in India, and some kid in heaven comes up to me and says, thanks so much. I'm the reason you're here. Or you invite a friend to go with you to Fairplex, and maybe a seed is planted, or maybe they commit their heart to Jesus at the Fairplex here in a month, and, and lo and behold, there they are in heaven, and they come over to you and say, hey, I'm here for eternity because of you. Thank you so much. There's sacrifice and suffering, but there's also unspeakable joy when you see that person in heaven. To live an epic life, you must embrace suffering. Aren't you glad you set your clock ahead to be here this morning? Yahoo. Um, you know, you embrace the suffering. Um, gosh, nothing like putting people the first time on the spot, but Pastor Eric was just introducing me to some friends that run a fitness gym, like a gym, right, okay? They're all about embrace the suffering, right? I mean, I hope I'm right, and you'll look at me and say, Glenn, you have not embraced the suffering enough, you know, you, do, you need to embrace the suffering some more. My wife, Kimberly claims I haven't raised my weights in 30 years, you know, and I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm still lifting the same weights at 63 than I did at 33. Doesn't that count for something? So at any rate, but they say embrace the suffering. The only way you get in better physical shape is to embrace the suffering, and basically to have an epic life, you've got to embrace the suffering. 
I've heard this compared to childbirth. Um, before our first child, Abby, was born, people would say, oh, childbirth, it's just so beautiful. And I've been present for a couple of childbirths. And I can tell you, there ain't nothing beautiful about the birth process itself, okay? It's kind of terrifying. I mean, it's kind of frightening. I remember just being in there and looking at the doctor and the nurses like, like, is this normal? Is this normal? This is, this is like amazing. I mean, my wife, I, I always told her, I said, that is the greatest athletic feat I have ever seen in my life. My, my, my goodness. Um, now, uh, who would go through all of this voluntarily and even call the whole process beautiful? I tell you who would. Almost every mom in this room would enthusiastically say, I would. They would wave away the thought of their suffering and say to their child, it's, it's, if that's what it took, if that's what it took to bring you into the world, they would echo the words of, of Paul, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. There's a King James old-fashioned language way of saying to your child, just go home, freak your teenager right out. Walk into your teenager's room this afternoon and say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, okay? But your sufferings continue in the case of, okay, we won't get into teenagers right now. Uh, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. It was, it was totally, totally worth it. It's the same with the adoption process for those of you that have adopted. Uh, we have six children. Two of our children were born to us. Four we adopted. And boy, the adoption process, it's hard. It, 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 it gets discouraging. It seems to take forever, but it's totally worth it in the end. You know, I, oh boy, I hope I'm not getting myself in trouble right here. I have a joke with Kimberly that whenever women, whenever moms get together, I time how long it'll take until they tell their childbirth stories, okay? You know, just do this. How long does it take before they tell their childbirth stories? And they always try to outdo each other with how long their labor was. And so the first one will go, well, my labor was four hours. The next person will go, well, my labor was 14 hours. Next one, my labor was 40 days and 40 nights, you know. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, my, my, my labor was all nine months, all nine months. Of my life. And, um, and with adoption, it is. Sometimes your labor can be for a year. You, you all that have adopted, you, you know uh, what I'm talking about. Well, now let's finish up that, that verse where we're spending most of our time. He says in Colossians 1.24 in the second half, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Okay, wait a minute, Paul. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions? Wait a minute. That is a staggering statement. Uh, what could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, which is a church? I mean, we get into Easter season. We're going to talk, especially at the Good Friday service, about what Jesus suffered for us. What could be lacking in us? I mean, didn't Jesus say it is finished when he hung on the cross? In the Aramaic, he said, tetelestai. He hung on the cross, the Bible says, and cried out in his native tongue in Aramaic, tetelestai. It, it is finished. Hasn't he done everything necessary to save us? Why would Paul say that something was lacking? Well, in one sense, uh, the work of salvation uh, is complete. Jesus has done everything necessary uh, to save us. But in another sense, the saving act is not complete until we hear it and respond. Martin Luther had a famous line. He said, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if no one ever heard about it. 
Uh, Carl Henry, the great theologian, said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Uh, Basically, what Paul is saying is that Christ's sufferings are not complete in the fullest sense until you hear about it and you respond. And Paul is saying, he's saying, you know what? If it takes my suffering to bring that about, I will gladly go through it. I've preached in Romania, and there's been a great deal of suffering uh, for the gospel in that country. And a Romanian pastor uh, once said, Christ's cross was for propitiation. Now, that's fancy theologian term for just the price that Jesus paid by dying on the cross. That, that's what that means. He, he took our place on the cross. Christ's cross was for propitiation. Ours is for propagation. That is proclaiming the gospel, sharing it with other people. Christ's suffering on the cross was, was for propitiation. The price was paid for us to be forgiven. Our cross, the suffering we go through, is for propagation. We suffer, we embrace it in order to share the message of Jesus with everybody that we can. Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. We suffer to spread salvation. John Piper said, and our willingness to endure hardship for the good of others is a filling up of Christ's afflictions because it extends the benefits of Christ's death to others and makes them visible. So here's like a really tough question. Uh, You know, I can ask myself, you can just listen in. So I'm just talking to Glenn now. Glenn, what are you willing to sacrifice over the next month to see your oikos connect with Jesus this Easter season? What are you willing to sacrifice over the next month to see your oikos connect with Jesus this Easter season? Now, it may be something that's a big deal, like having the courage to invite somebody to the fairplex. I realize that that can be a hard thing. Or bringing them with you. um, Or maybe having you alter your Easter lunch plans in order to bring them with you to the fairplex. And you'll tick off your extended family. Man, if if you, you know how that older sister is, man, you mess with the time of Easter lunch. I'm sorry, I love my older sister, but they, they rule our homes, right? You know, my oldest daughters do. I'm going to start stop talking right now. I'm going to shut up. So, so you know what it is to bring somebody with you to alter your Easter plans, uh, to kind of uh, get up the, gum, the courage to ask somebody. It, it's a big deal. Or giving up a weekend to serve. Uh, in order to make Easter at Fairplex uh, possible, to, to reach those thousands and thousands of people, to, to make sure they have a positive experience. Th- that's a big one. Or maybe something as small as just putting a bumper sticker on your car. It could be something that small. Um, now, I know some of you, how you feel about your car, you're saying, no, Glenn, that's a big one. All right, to put a bumper sticker on my car. But it might be something that small. Let's watch this together. We've been looking for a church for a couple years. We had tried out about 14 different churches, and we, towards the end of that, we were getting really discouraged, or we couldn't find a church that you know we liked. And so I remember we we're getting close to Easter, and I was telling Jose, like, we really need to have a church for Easter because it's Easter, you know. And so I started praying, and I asked the Lord just show me where we're supposed to go and so i was driving and the car in front of me had a bumper sticker that said easter at the fairplex so i went home and i looked at the church on the website and i showed it to jose and we were like well let's check it out so we came on palm sunday and we sat in the back and just took it all in and um, worship started and i just remember feeling god's presence so strong and i held jose's hand and i said this is it and we've been coming ever since 
since uh, we've been coming here, we've been very involved with the church. Uh, for one, I joined the IMPACT program, with, which is a master's program in uh, ministry and leadership through Hope International University. And through this program, we've been uh, involved with several ministries, such as leading a RITA group, uh, uh, leading a Financial Peace University group, and uh, my wife and I have uh, you know, joined this experience together, so we've been uh, happy to serve in this way. Thank you so much, Purpose Church, for your participation and putting on those bumper stickers. If you had not, we wouldn't be here today. So I just want to encourage everybody, put up those signs, put up your bumper stickers, and invite anybody. You never know who's looking for a new church home. All right, it's that time of year when I guilt you about the bumper stickers again. By the way, next Sunday, you got to come. The video clip we have within video announcements is like the best acting I've ever seen in my life. It's like Oscar-worthy. It is worth coming to church next Sunday just for the video clip. Get here in time for the video clip during video announcements. Uh, Jesus said in John 20, verse 21, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He wrote to the church of Christians that were following Jesus in Rome and what is today Italy. Uh, he says, I am obligated, I am in debt both to Greeks and non-Greeks. I'm in debt to everybody to share Jesus with them regardless of what race they are, racial background. He was Jewish, but he said, I'm obligated to share with non-Jewish people as well. Uh, after Jesus, is, what he's done for us, we have an obligation, a debt to share it with others. Uh, Micah 6 verse 8. Uh, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Boy, these are three parts. I mean, when it says, what is God looking for from me? Uh, well, I'm, 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 my ears are perked up. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, this phrase, to act justly, uh, for us it usually means, okay, that we're fair, that we don't steal from each other. But in the Bible, to be just also carries with it the meaning that you use what you have for the reasons God gave it to you. You use your time, your talent, your resources. You, it also means using what you have for the reasons that God gave it to you. You know, in just the old part of the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, the first three quarters of the Bible, it, it says the phrase, it is unjust, almost 200 times. This is a big deal in the Bible, talking about justice. And it means that it is unjust for those in positions of privilege, not to leverage that privilege for those without it. So people who don't know Jesus, it requires us to share Jesus with them. Uh, to take our knowledge of Jesus and share it with people uh, that don't know about him. That's what it carries with it, that idea. Poverty around the world requires something of us that are rich. And if you're like me, you say, well, I'm not rich. Well, you've heard the stats maybe before. Only about 4.25, 4 and a quarter percent of the world's population are Americans. And yet we account for more than 25% of the world's wealth. My goodness, 4% of the population over 25% of the world's wealth. Now don't feel guilty about that. It just means that we produce more than anyone else. But the point is that just by living in the United States means that we have a lot compared to the rest of the world. And Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. Do you know if you earn just $34,000 a year in total household income? 34000 How many people that earn 34000 total household income feel rich? But if you earn just 34000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world's population as far as wealth. Top, you know those one percenters we always hear about? 
If we just made 34000 a year and we live in the United States, we are in that top 1%. In the meantime, 2.5 billion people live in substandard housing or without adequate nourishment or access to clean water. Uh, every week, 100,000 kids die of starvation or preventable hunger-related diseases. You know, that, that like requires something of us. Uh, do you know that American Christians have a combined annual income of $5 trillion a year? We are the richest faith community in all of human history. We're the richest faith community in all of human history. I came across this list the other day. Uh, what do you think all of this would cost? And I'm not talking just one of these items. What, 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 what would this cost, this whole grocery list? Uh, number one, sponsor a million, one million indigenous full-time missionaries in poor nations around the world. Number two, completely fund the fight against global malaria. Number three, quadruple the global missions budget of all missions agencies engaged in reaching unevangelized nations. Uh, number five, provide food, clothing, and shelter to all 6.5 million refugees across Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, triple the global Bible translation budget. Fund 150,000 seminary scholarships for promising students in emerging economies. Double the operating budget of Compassion International or increase World Vision's budget by 32%. You can take your pick. Uh, this is political. There are people that work at both places here, so I don't want to tick anybody off and get beaten up by World Vision or Compassion people out in the parking lot afterwards. Okay. Establish eight new Christian universities around the world. Hire 25,000 additional American missionaries to work on our college campuses. What do you think the price tag of all of that would be to do all of that together? It could all be accomplished if the Christian community in the United States gave just point. 4% more of its income. That's an additional $1 out of every $250 we earn for the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul continues in verse 25, I've become its servant by the commission. Just like if you're in the military, you receive a military commission. We've been given an assignment from God. God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. We have, we have one job. We have one job to do everything we can to see everyone everywhere following Jesus. That's our mission statement, our purpose statement as a church. Everyone everywhere following Jesus. We have w one job, and we don't want to fail at it. Now, this has been kind of a heavy message. So everybody take like a deep breath, okay? Okay, just take a deep breath, and let's have a little bit of a fun with this one. I came across some pictures of you had one job pictures, and I just want to share them with you. I love these so much. Uh, here's you had one job. Okay, the, here's the metal thir thirst, thirst, uh, it should be third, third, okay. You'll see it, see it in a minute there. Okay, here, here's another one. I love this one. Uh, you had one job, and that is to get the right name to the right, the right continent there. Okay. Uh, you, you had one job, uh, just to be careful where you were backing into that would be uh, your, your one job. All right, here's another one. You had one job, and uh, th this is what you call mixed messaging right here. This is, this is mixed messaging. Here's another example of mixed messaging. The library is now selling free copy for, for a dollar. Okay, you had one job. You had one job, and we see this out in front every, every week, you know, but sometimes it doesn't go... Um, doesn't go as well as you would like it to go, you know, so 
All right, just one job, and that is to get the name here, to get the name put, put, put right, right there in those. Okay, I love this one so much. This is so good. The College of Architecture and Planning, and Planning, and you know the C really does work over here. This is, this is exactly the kind of thing I would do. I want you to know that is exactly. And say to Kimberly, it looks fine to me. What are you, honey? What are you, what are you uptight about? You know. Chris, you got to help me with that, okay? Chris is coming to fix my door tomorrow before she gets home from Washington, D.C. Okay, you're going to, this is my marriage counselor right here, okay? That door can get fixed before, that'd be great. Okay, I love this one here because you had the word right in front of you uh, as you're doing this. And, and then this final one, you know, sometimes at work things just get, get away from you as, as they get away. And, and this is... Uh, this is, uh, rule number one is to stay, to stay in the job, that poor guy. All right. All right. Enough of that. You have one job, one job. Everyone everywhere following Jesus. Okay. A faith that sacrifices, and now down the home stretch, uh, a couple more. A faith that is for everyone. A faith that is for everyone. Across racial lines, across geographic lines, across um, you know, male and female, and, and across age groups. Uh, it's for everyone. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles. Now, probably the hardest racial barrier, maybe in human history, was between Jews and non-Jews at this time period in the Roman Empire. And yet Paul, who's Jewish, says to make him known among the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me, a faith that is for everyone. Now, last month, I talked about my hero, um, Kennedy Smart. And sorry, I don't know what it is at this age in life. You kind of look back over who some of your heroes have been in the past. And, you know, I find myself doing that today. I ask your forgiveness, talking about my dad, talking about my, this was my pastor when I was growing up. He was my pastor when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was a young adult. And uh, my dad uh, was the chairman of the elder board in our Presbyterian church. And so my dad was the one who always had my pastor's back. They were like joined at the hip. And my dad, who was a businessman, a president of a lumber company, but he was the chairman of the elder board in our Presbyterian church. And he, he like always had uh, my pastor's back. He was always uh, defending him and helping him carry out his vision uh, for our church. Um, Kennedy Smart, my pastor, he was one of the most courageous men that I ever met. Uh, he was courageous as a soldier. Uh, he was in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II when Nazi Germany, Hitler, made his counteroffensive. He was the one caught in the middle of that. He was courageous as a soldier. He was courageous as a church leader. He was courageous in his preaching. And as I shared with you last month, he was the boldest person I think I've ever met in sharing Christ with other people. He just was he was like, like fearless. And I grew up in a really rough and tumble town. Hopewell, Virginia was called the chemical capital of the South. Almost everybody there worked in the chemical plants. It was the biggest chemical area for the whole southern states. And man, belching pollution. I mean, our, my hometown smelled. I mean, I, you know, we, I went to Prince George High School, and our chant against Hopewell High School when we played them was, I smell, you smell, we all smell Hopewell, is what the <laughs> chant went. 
And then we were the farm high school, and so they would say, go back, go back, go back to milking cows, Prince George, go back, go back. So anyway, I digress. So at any rate, uh, just it was a rough, rough town. And one of the rougher guys in it was a guy named Jack Braswell. And, and Jack happened to be an alcoholic, and uh, my, my pastor, Kennedy Smart, went to his house and shared Jesus with him. And he, and he asked him, you know, would you kneel down now and uh, accept Christ as, as your Lord and Savior in, into your heart? And Jack Braswell said, well, there's just one thing i got to do before that. Goes into his bedroom, comes out with a lo- loaded revolver, and my pastor's like, where's this going? And he says, come out with me to the backyard. Jack Braswell goes in his backyard, lines up every whiskey bottle in his, in, along the fence post of his backyard, takes the revolver and blows each one away in his backyard, puts the smoking gun down, turns to my Kennedy Smart, and he says, okay, I'm ready now. Knelt down next to the sofa, received Christ as a Savior. Uh, this happened before I kind of uh, was of an age that I could understand. Jack Braswell was the kindest, most gentle, loving man in, in our church. He was my scout leader uh, when I was, uh, our church sponsored a, a scout troop. He was the most wonderful man you could ever meet. So he was courageous in sharing Christ. But the, the, the one area of his courage that I kind of took for granted until recently, I didn't appreciate it at the time, uh, kind of didn't, kind of thought it was just kind of typical. But now looking back on it, the one kind of courage that I took for granted until recently is how courageous uh, my pastor was in the area of racial reconciliation in Southern Virginia in the 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, Our church was the first um, uh, church in the history of the state of Virginia, or the first institution of any kind in the state of of, of Virginia to have an integrated private school. Our church started the first integrated private school in the entire history of the state of Virginia. Our church, I believe, uh, under the leadership of Kennedy Smart, was the first in our area to follow the example of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and of Billy Graham and to integrate uh, evangelistic services. I remember as a kid just seeing um, our almost all-white congregation, and all of a sudden Kennedy Smart walks in, followed by about 40 or 50 African Americans from, from a nearby church, and they file into the rows in, in, in front of us. And I just thought nothing of it. I just thought, well, this is just kind of... And then looking back at the courage it took for those people, not so much for Kennedy Smart, think of the courage it took those people to walk into, into that church. And he was just kind of a leader in that area. So a few weeks ago, I found this video clip on a racial reconciliation website. And, and lo and behold, it featured my old pastor, Kennedy Smart, his wife has passed away, so he's a widower now, but he's still pastoring down in Georgia at the age of 90. Still going strong. Let's watch this. In 1952, when Matt McGowan came up here to be the pastor, the uh, church was right where this road is. There was no road right here. That's where the church sat. I think the characteristic of a true church is love. Love for God and love for our fellow man. And I feel like that this church is going to have to learn to have a passion for God. We are being multicultural. It's happening mostly on Wednesday night when we have so many of the young people. But in two or three more years, those young people are going to be young adults. And uh, they're going to be uh, marrying and so forth, and they're going to be establishing families. Well, it's our prayer and my prayer especially that these young people that are coming here now 
will establish their families here in five to ten years and be a part of a, a much more multicultural congregation. If Chestnut Mountain Presbyterian Church doesn't become multicultural, God will write Ichabod over the door of the church and uh, in time it'll die because God will not be blessing it. They might continue to meet and they might continue to have church suppers, but the Spirit of God will not be there. And without the Spirit of God, there will be no life in the church. We built the Covenant Life Center here as a tool to reach out to the young people of this community, all young people. I said to the boy that I started mentoring, do you realize that the people of this congregation spent $5 million for you and your friends to find a place where you could have uh, Christian fellowship and Christian teaching and, uh, and to be loved and to love others. And he said, kind of a grin, I really never thought of it that way. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Hallelujah. Isn't he awesome? I love my home church pastor. Uh, by the way, when he said they raised $5 million to reach the next generation, hold on to that thought for a few months, okay? Just let that kind of be a little bit of a see there. Let's have the praise team come back up. A faith that is for everyone, and finally, a faith that is worth it because of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are, and how firm your faith, your first-generation faith, your on-mission faith, your sacrificial faith, your clock-change Sunday Christian faith in Christ is. Lord, I pray that you will just help us to keep rekindling that first love. Uh, that, that willing to sacrifice. Help, help us in our marriages. I remember how much I was willing to sacrifice for Kimberly when, I, when we first got married. But now, not so much. And I need to get that back again. Love her like I did at the beginning. I think about how um, uh, this church, through the generations, through 150 years, it's taken moments like this where people said, Hey, we're sliding into maintenance. Let's get back to mission." again and again and again. I think about that people here and their businesses and, and where they work and um, in the institutions that they're part of. Help us to get back on mission once again. But most of all, Jesus, with you, uh, I pray that we'll get back to our first love. Just like the series Colossians is telling us, first. Help us to get back to that first excitement and vitality and enthusiasm and love that we had for you when we first committed our heart to Jesus. If you're here today and you've never opened up your heart to Jesus, this can be your moment. You just simply say three, three things 
three things. Uh, same three things your mother taught you or your dad taught you years ago. Um, sorry, thank you, and please. Uh, first of all, sorry. God, I'm sorry for the wrong I've done in my life and the way I've not lived the way you'd want me to live. I'm sorry. Um, second, thank you that because of Jesus and his death on the cross, I can be forgiven. And then finally, please, Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Savior. Forgive me. Um, and Lord, show me from this day forward how you would like me to live. I'm sorry. Thank you for forgiving me by your death on the cross. Please show me how I can follow you and follow in your footsteps from this day forward. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, amen. Hey, let's stand up. Let's go after it and worship.